Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. I see shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first God having raised up his son Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities amen tonight uh, for a topic I want to speak to us about privilege and responsibility privilege and responsibility here from the last portion of Acts 3 God, I come to you here this evening. Lord, we're grateful, God, to be here. We're grateful, Lord, to be, Lord, able to open your word, Lord Jesus, and find, God, real-life scenarios in Scripture that can be applicable, Lord, to our own lives. I pray, oh, Lord, tonight, God, that you're able to touch each and every individual in the sound of my voice. God, you're able to help us, God, in this study, Lord, and will not fail to glorify you and thank you, Father, for what you accomplish and do in this place. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. The church say amen. Amen. You may be seated here this evening. Hallelujah. Just as a little recap, because we did have asked the pastors last week, just as a little recap again here on Acts chapter number three, uh, before we finish up this chapter, you'll remember it starts out with the miracle of the man who was lame from his mother's womb. And the miracle of that lame man drew a crowd as miracles all time did in scriptures. Peter, seizing the moment, seizing the opportunity, took that opportunity then to preach the word to the people that had gathered around. And as they came, some of them were amazed and uh, all of them were amazed, I would say, probably, but uh, more so than not, there were some, though, that had a little misunderstanding, thinking that perhaps it was Peter and John that had wrought this miracle by their own hands and so there was a test then that had come upon both Peter and John in this moment the Lord was seeing how they would deal with the praise of men would they direct that praise where it really needed to go which was unto God and in fact they did they passed with flying colors because they pointed uh, that this miracle and the things that had happened the real reason behind it it was all accomplished by his name and by faith in his name And so ultimately, Peter then brought the people through his message. He brought them to a place that they realized that they were guilty, uh, guilty for delivering and denying Jesus Christ, the very one that had made this man that has been lame whole again. He brought them to a place of feeling guilty, and then he offered them hope. He offered them a way out of their dilemma. And a little bit what we'll start with here tonight is a means out of that. He spoke to them about repentance and conversion and how times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. Notice in verse 19, it's an imperative statement that Peter is making to those of the crowd that have gathered. He says, repent ye. I know that's King James you know, language, but repent you. Repent you therefore. They always say whenever you come to therefore, you need to understand or find out why it's therefore. And so therefore always speaks to something that has already been said. And so there are some good grounds then why they should repent. They should repent, therefore, because based upon everything that had been previously mentioned, they should repent because they were the ones. 
that delivered the Lord to be crucified whenever Pilate would rather have released him to walk away free. They were the ones that had denied him. They were the ones that desired a murderer. Barabbas over the prince of life. Amen. That we looked at a couple weeks ago. And so based upon all these deeds and all these actions. Repent you therefore because of all these things that have taken place. Repentance. I know it's an old message. I know it's a message that we repetitively talk about around here. And it will continue to to be so one of those topics repentance of course in its basic form is a change of mind which results in a change of life that 180 degree turn that about face if you will but in reality when we consider a change of mind repentance being a change of mind here is a very simple fact for all of us today and that is the mind at times can be easier to change than your life is Amen. Uh, the mind sometimes can flip back and forth between, you know, you, you, how many have even done that before? You're going to do this and then, no, I changed my mind. You ever heard that statement? I know my wife's told me that, picking out clothes. Changed my mind. Amen. Some of you may change your mind on other stances besides what you wear, but clothes. Very easy to change your mind. Sometimes, though, easier than your, your life. But a life will only come to a position of being changed when the mind changes and holds consistent to that pattern. All right? And so with it, the mind may be at times being easy to change. That is both a very positive benefit and a negative benefit. Because while it may be easy to change from here to there, it's also very easy to change backwards again. And so it's being able to change your mind and then keep a consistent thought pattern concerning whatever that change is and if you'll do that then you'll understand it'll start impacting your life I believe we would all uh, desire what Paul spoke in Philippians when he told us let this mind be in you Philippians 2 5 let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus and so that's what we are aspiring for in our walk with the Lord is that his mind would become our mind amen not that our mind would become his you know, people trying to find the mind of God sometimes are trying to get God's mind to uh, correlate with their mind. But really finding the mind of God is allowing his mind to become what we support, what we back and what we uphold. And so we want the mind of Christ to be inside of us. Even in the Old Testament, in the book of Ruth, uh, whenever Naomi was going back to Bethlehem of Judea and her daughter-in-law, uh, Ruth, was going to go with her, she tried to discourage Ruth from following her tried to tell her to go back to her mom and her dad and her gods and but Ruth the Bible says basically told Naomi where you go I'll go where you lodge I'll lodge your people will be my people your God will be my God where you are buried that's where I will be buried also and the Bible says Naomi came to an understanding that whenever she seen that Ruth was steadfastly minded to go with her that she didn't say anything else to her because Naomi knew that she would not have been able to persuade her any differently because her mind had only been changed to go with her but it had become set it had become very steadfast and so she knew she would not be able to influence her and so in certain degrees we need to adopt if you will the mindset of Ruth concerning the things of God and that is become steadfastly mining concerning the things of the Lord Jesus Christ and doing so will then affect how we live 
it will affect our lifestyle. And so when we look at repentance, he says, repent ye therefore and be converted. Repentance necessitates a conversion. Uh-huh. A change of mind about life to live differently then means that you're going to have to convert from the way that you used to live to a new means or mechanism of living. Repentance simply is simply is turning from, defined as turning from, while conversion is, devi- is, is defined as turning to. And I know we said before in that about face thing, you can't turn away from something without turning towards something else. And we hope the default is God, but you could turn away from something, turn to something else that isn't God. And so it's the, the turning away, amen, of repentance, but then the turning to and conversion is, of course, then toward the Lord. And so there must be, I, uh, with clarity, there must be conviction before a sinner can experience conversion. Amen. You've got the conviction that that sense of living diametrically not not according to opposed to God's will and purpose you got to feel as though there's something not quite right about that in order for there to be ever a conversion that would take place in your life because why would you turn away from and turn towards something else if you're satisfied with what you're doing right amen and most people are not willing to change anything until somebody can introduce what would seem to them to be a better way Amen. Absolutely. And so we, we can get stuck in ruts sometimes if we don't believe what is coming down the pike. Amen. Is a better way. And so we got to have conviction for what we are presently involved in in order to experience conversion. And so Peter brought this crowd that had gathered around the miraculous. He brought this crowd to a place of conviction. And based upon their conviction then, notice it drew them to God and they repented then. They repented, they turned from that, amen. And then they were converted and they turned to the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of this systematic way of having conviction and then repentance and then conversion. And then this whole, this whole initial process we really see of, of, of conviction, repentance, and conversion, this whole initial process has a very positive impact, a very positive effect, because the Bible tells us that your sins may be blotted out. Everybody say blotted out. He says, you, you, you follow through with all this, this repentance, this conversion, this conversion aspect of life, so that your sins will be blotted out. Now, the New Testament word for blotted, the New Testament Greek word for blotted, is so effective in in illustrating the difference in how sins of the Old Testament were dealt with compared to how sins in the New Testament are dealt with. All right? That I say sins in the New Testament since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Up to them, they were dealt with just the same way as they were in the Old Testament. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sin was dealt with differently. And we see this in the word blotted. If you'll remember, we go all the way back to the beginning. It's going to be a long Bible study. We go all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. And interestingly enough, the first thing that Adam and Eve did when they were aware of their nakedness that resulted from their transgression, from their sin, taking of the fruit, 
of the tree that they were not supposed to take of, the, their, their, first, their first reaction whenever they were aware of their nakedness as, as a result of their sin, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3, 7, that they, Adam and Eve, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons for the purpose of covering their nakedness. And so their nakedness was deeply tied to their transgression. They didn't know they were naked or had an awareness that there was any shame or guilt with that nakedness until they had committed their sin. And so their answer for this is let's sew fig leaves together and let's cover it up. Right? As a matter of fact, there was then the Lord came down and then gave them clothes, clothes of skins to wear, which necessitated the sacrifice of an animal, skins brought up, and he covered them even a little better than what they were covered themselves. They were clothed, the Bible says, but it still provided a covering for them. Now, no, but whenever God comes down in the cool of the day in Genesis to talk with them, have conversation with them, as he oft times did, whenever they knew, he heard his voice, the Bible says, the aprons didn't even do good enough for them at that point. They went and hid themselves among the trees. So they're trying to cover themselves up. Then, whenever he begins to address each of them, you know, Adam, what, what are you doing? You know, why did you do this? Oh, it was the woman that you gave me. Why did you do this? Well, it was the serpent that beguiled me. And they start blaming somebody else. Again, a blame is just another way to try to cover. Huh? tried to cover up and so we see humanity from the very beginning the way that they dealt with their sin was to try to cover it up cover it up cover it up and in the beginning there was a sacrifice and they were clothed with skins and there was a covering that was provided for them so the old testament way of dealing with sin was just covered up it does not mean it didn't still exist it was just hidden all right so you just keep covering all of this stuff up. We understand in Scripture, uh, even David, he went through a, a very rigorous journey and a lot of trouble trying to cover up his sin of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. You know, trying to get uh, Uriah, her husband, to come home, trying to get him then once he got home to get down to his house and just take a little reprieve with his wife. But he said, no, I'm staying right here. All these men, they're sleeping out there. I'm going to sleep right here at the king's gate and so on and so forth. And then finally, ultimately, has him killed uh, so much so out on the battlefield. And so he's, he's covering all this stuff up until sooner or later, the prophet Nathan just exposes everything. How in the world could he do that? Because it was just covered up. He could pull back the blanket and say, there it is, because there was just covering. And so that's the way that sin, for the most part, was dealt with in the Old Testament. It was just a covering up of what was there. But Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 4 and verse 5, Nehemiah uses both of these terms of to cover and blotted. And he denotes, you can denote even here in the Old Testament, Nehemiah is picking up on that there is a difference between something, a sin being covered and a sin being Blotted. The Bible says in Nehemiah 4 and 5, he says, And cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked 
thee to anger before the builders. Nehemiah is talking about that time that he's already back. He's rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They are about halfway, and he's receiving a lot of aggravation from Sanballat and Tobiah, some of the enemies of the Lord, enemies of Nehemiah, and they're causing some grief during this reconstruction process. And so in this, Nehemiah cries out to God, and he's telling God, don't cover their iniquity. And he goes even a step further. For that matter, he says, don't even blot out. Don't even blot out their sin. And so what Nehemiah, in saying this, he's showing that there is a difference between covering and blotting because it had been sufficient just to say one if they were the same. But they're not the same. They are different. He said, he said don't, let there be, don't let them be covered and don't even let them be blotted. Amen. Don't let them be blotted out. Because the word blotted in the Greek and even in the Hebrew, when Nehemiah used it in the Old Testament, means to erase. Erase. Not just to simply cover. Amen. Something covered is hidden. Without the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He said, the work of Christ on the cross didn't just cover up what was wrong. It took care of, removed, erased, got rid of. You have reason to rejoice today as a New Testament Christian because contrary to the way that the Old Testament dealt with sin, there was just a covering. But you today don't have a covering over your sin. You have an eradication. Amen. Eradication of your sin. Now what this goes to is this. This word blotted, the scribes of that day would be very, very understanding of this term blotted or blotting out. Because whenever they wrote on the parchment and the papyrus and the different mediums that they had during this time and culture, when they wrote upon them with the ink that they had, the ink that they used in those days were without acid. Now, what that means for you and I is this. That's unlike today. The ink that we use have acid within the ink. And since there is acid within our inks, if we were to write up on parchment or, or, or papers or whatever that they had in those Old Testament days, then it bites into the paper. But their ink that did not have acid in them, it was just basically laying on the top of the papyrus, on the top of the parchment, on the top of the scroll. And so since today we have acid in our ink, you can take something, you can wet it, you can scribble it on top. It might smear a little bit, but it's not coming off. It's remaining. But in those days, since there was no acid in the ink, the only thing that it took to remove the ink from a parchment, they said, was to grab a, a wet sponge and they could wipe it across the parchment and whatever was written was gone it blotted it blotted out what was there formerly that is what Christ did with your sin and my sin the handwritings of the ordinances that were against you every little every little flub up every little bad word every action of incongruity with God's word everything that was pinned down thank God he uses that little parallel like they did they were writing though with an ink that did not per se have acid in it and a wet sponge could take care of it now I, I, my mind goes a lot of directions but it's interesting to me that it's a wet sponge that takes away with the cleansing because my Bible tells me that repentance and baptism in Jesus' name is for the remission. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah. That water is involved in the blotting out process. Woo! Well, glory. Amen. Hallelujah. And so with that being said, we look a little bit further here at this, a little further at this. The Bible says, it goes on then to tell us, when the times of refreshing, we're still in verse 19, I understand that. Amen. When times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now this is really twofold, and really the chapter 3, whenever Peter begins to preach to the men of Israel is what he addresses this to. If we back back up into the previous verses, he addresses the men of Israel. This is really twofold. Not only is this idea of conviction, repentance, conversion, all right, blotting out, uh, refreshing, not only does that, 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 that come to an individual level, it most certainly does, but it comes to a greater, a greater level than that, and that is the entire nation of Israel, all right? Because something that God has always done leading up here into the New Testament and he's always trying to gather Israel as a nation, even more so than just individuals, but as a nation, to turn. Uh-huh. To turn back in good standing with the Lord. And so there's a very near purpose here of a time of refreshing that I believe is allusion to the gift of the Holy Ghost. But there is also a time of refreshing that he's speaking about for the whole nation of Israel. And that is the kingdom the nation of Israel, the kingdom being restored to Israel at some time. You remember back in Acts 1, whenever the Lord was on the verge of ascending and they asked him, they asked him, said, will you now restore the kingdom back to Israel? See, it was even on their heart and mind as well. This time of refreshing is not just on an individual basis, but it's on a nation, a nation basis. Something, a time of refreshing that they would receive and experience from the presence of the Lord. Could it come to an individual? Absolutely. A forgiveness of sins? Absolutely. But it could also come to a nation of Israel by means of their Messiah coming to live and reign among them. He already had the first time, but he will again. Uh-huh. Their Messiah will come again. Amen. And that day after the time of, uh, of great tribulation and he will restore a kingdom. Amen. Here upon the earth. And so Peter told them, Peter told them that Jesus would come. The very one that had been preached to them. He basically told them in verse number 20. He said Jesus will come. Remember uh, in chapter 1 whenever Jesus was ascending once again. And there were some of his disciples, they were standing there just gazing up into the clouds and the angels came alongside them and asked them why they stood there gazing because everybody say the same, the same Jesus that went away would come back in like manner. And we all know, undoubtedly, we teach and preach around here and we believe that Jesus will come. Scripture even indicates to us that Jesus will come back in the clouds and receive his bride, the church, on the day of rapture. But we also believe, like Zechariah prophesied, that he will come back and he'll set his feet back on the Mount of Olives from whence he left. Amen. In chapter 1 of Acts, he left from the Mount of Olives. But that same Jesus is going to come back again. Amen. 
in his rule and his reign upon earth, whenever there comes a new heaven and a new earth, he's going to set his feet back upon that mount of olives from whence he leapt from. But, Peter says, Israel, this will not happen until the time of restitution of all things. And the time of restitution of all things will not be until that new heaven and that new earth. As notably, Peter tells us, now here's the thing. I like Peter, and I do. He's a great guy. Peter tells us that God has been talking about this all through the prophets. In other words, you all can't say this is the first time you've ever heard this. Wow. He said God's been talking about this through his prophets, look now, since the world began. Folks, I stand here tonight and I'm telling you, whether you're the nation of Israel, you're the church, we're going to stand before God without excuse. As the great exploits of the book of Acts, they said, was not done in a corner somewhere, neither is this thing called his word and his name and all that, neither has that been done somewhere in the corner. We go be without excuse. He said, God's been talking about ever since, ever since the world began. None of this, I, I want to emphasize tonight, none of this that comes about and is even into play in our world, none of this is an afterthought to God. This is not some postscript to God, abide the way type of thing. This isn't some plan that he's come up with just in the past few years, few thousand years. It has always been. Amen. Even back in the beginning. The Bible says in Jude 1.14. I know I've shared this with you somewhere in my pastorate here. And Enoch also the seventh from Adam. All the way back then. Prophesied. Of these saying behold the Lord cometh when ten thousands of his saints. All the way back. The seventh from Adam. Enoch was given a voice of prophecy. Of a day when the Lord was going to be coming back with his saints. <laughs> this, you know, this is not so. The book of Revelation is not new. Ever, ever since about 90, 96 or so AD, it's been even into existence. Boy, I'm saying this thought and this idea, even that predates Revelation all the way back to 7 from Adam, Enoch speaking, prophesying of a day when the Lord would come with 10,000 of his saints all the way back in the beginning. And so I think it's important, vitally important for Peter in this moment to let the people know, the nation of Israel know, that when he spoke of the second coming of Christ, whenever he spoke of their Messiah, he wasn't talking about a new idea to them. But the idea in reality was just as ancient as their God was. Mm -hmm. The Bible tells us, if you'll, if you'll refer back, you look at verse 22. In verse 22 of Acts 3, Peter's referring back to the words the words of Moses and I want to read the words of Moses in Deuteronomy that Peter is referring back to in, in, in verse number 22 here are the actual words of Moses that Peter makes reference to in Deuteronomy 18 and 15 the Bible says the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me this is Moses speaking he said, the Lord thy God, the Lord had told Moses this. He's going, to raise, he's going to raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren. Like unto me, it's going to be similar to me, Moses. Unto him ye shall hearken. 
This is true. As a matter of fact, many of the New Testament uh, people even uh, thought that the Lord was just that. He was just a prophet. Some said Elias, some said Jeremiah, but some just thought a prophet. A couple of the disciples after the uh, resurrection of the Lord that were walking on their way to Emmaus and they were having their conversation uh, with one another, you'll remember that they accounted Jesus in that conversation that he was a mighty prophet. As a matter of fact, the adulterous woman that was caught in the very act of adultery and brought before the people, brought before the Lord in John 4, she even perceived after the Lord had conversation with him that thou art a, I perceive that you are a, you're a prophet. Amen. And so there were several others within the community that thought he was some sort of a prophet. Moses said that this prophet that would arise in their day would come from the midst of them, be one of their brethren. God's word is just so magnificent to me. It is awesome. Because that was only possible by God coming in the flesh as Jesus Christ. There are so many things that were fulfilled by God coming in the flesh, being manifested in the flesh. And this prophecy of, of, of Moses and what he said is one of them. How would this prophet arise among the brethren, be likened to him, do what Moses says he will do if God had manifested himself in the flesh and made himself a body? And so Jesus was a prophet that was similar to Moses in that he brought both deliverance. Moses brought deliverance. Christ brought deliverance. But Moses also said as a judge and brought judgment and Christ will do the same. He will be the judge. And the Lord says then continuing in Deuteronomy 18 and 18, here's what the Lord said. It says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken in my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And so this is fulfilled in the New Testament scripture. Anytime, almost anytime you see Jesus and he spoke, he would say that the words that I speak are not my words, but they're my father's words. Back in Deuteronomy, the Lord prophesied, I'll put my words in his mouth. I'll put my word in this prophet's mouth. That's the reason why you see Jesus all the time saying, well, the words I speak are not my own, they're my father's. God indeed put the words in Jesus' mouth, so to speak. And the success and the failure of whoever would hear or reject these words of the prophet Jesus, amen, their success or failure was based upon whether they would receive them or whether they would reject them. And so here, here is the premise tonight. All of the prophets, the Bible and Acts starts from Samuel forward have been talking about the first coming and the second coming of Christ Jesus. Many of the Old Testament prophets speak about the birth of the Lord, his first coming. There's several that in the very same breath, sentence as we have at verse, speak of both the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's what Peter's saying from Samuel on. These prophets have been talking about this and then he puts in a little footnote there and he says, you all are the children of the prophets. You all are the children of the prophets. Amen. You lived in their homes. Some of you are their grandchildren. Amen. This was the time of the prophets and you are the children of the prophets. If there's anybody, in other words, that should be aware of what I'm talking about, he says you all should be. You're their children. Can I even say this? Having such a privilege 
of being children of the prophets, though also engages a responsibility upon your life. What I'm saying is, some of y'all didn't have to go out to a desert to hear someone proclaim this. You slept in the bed next door where God was speaking to the man. You've had this great privilege, but there's this great responsibility too. You heard, you are aware, you're not ignorant of the things that I'm talking to you about today. Amen. All the way back to Samuel 4, all the way back to Moses 4. This has been rehearsed and spoken of. Look what the Bible says. This has always been an interesting passage of Scripture to me in the New Testament of Luke 16 and verse 27. This is the story of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus that sat at his gate. Amen, all right? And the Bible says that they both died and that the angels came and took Lazarus and the rich man then would find himself, amen, in hell and lift up his eyes, the Bible says. But there, this is what the rich man is speaking uh, to Abraham. Lazarus is depicted as being in Abraham's bosom. The Bible says in Luke, in Luke 16, verse 27, then he said, the rich man, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus, send the beggar, Back from the grave to my father's house. He says, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He says some of these people can trace their, gene their genealogies back to these guys. They have Moses. They have the prophets. Not only that, not only that, but through written form, through, through written form of scrolls, although they may be sparse, you had the law and the prophets. You had the first five books of the Old Testament. You had the Genesis and the Exodus and Leviticus and the Numbers and the Deuteronomy. You had the Torah. You have these things. They're right before you. In verse 30, the Bible says, And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. I, I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're talking about. If somebody would just rise from the dead like Lazarus, go back and tell them they would repent then. He says in verse 31, And he said to them, If ye hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one from the dead he's saying if they're not getting the message through the, through the prophets and through Moses they're not going to get the message through somebody that rose from the dead and what he said was true that was before Christ ever died was buried and resurrected but whenever that all happened and Christ came forth when he's still proclaiming the message and they're, they're still not getting it I mean his words would still fall down at their feet and many would reject the message and so now we've had the message of one that rose from the dead. We still got the message of Moses. We still got the message of the prophets. But still people are not accepting the message. Amen. And let's get real. Everybody, I would say, to a certain degree, you might have a love-hate relationship with it. But everybody loves the office of a prophet. A love-hate relationship, maybe. And it's a necessary role that still needs to be filled and voiced in our churches today. But everyone that's clamoring for a word from God through a prophet and, has, and hasn't already received the words that are already available to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
A lot of people want a word from a man that's being used of God to speak a word from God. We already have a word from God. And I am by no means casting off on the office of a prophet. We need it. B.B. Warfield, he said one time, though he said the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Amen. And so what Peter is doing, he's bringing the people in that crowd to a very high level of accountability. He's basically telling them if anyone is going to be responsible for their reaction and their handling of the message that has been echoed in their ears, it will be the nation whose fathers were prophets proclaiming this truth. Huh? Not only that, look at this. Go back to Genesis 12. Go back to Father Abraham. Go back to the beginning of this nation called Israel that came from the loins of Abraham. Amen. That had a, a wife. Amen. In their old age and had children. All the way back then in Genesis 12, God is making a covenant with Abraham and his seed. He says, in thy seed, he said, in thy seed shall the nations and the world be blessed. In thy seed, it should happen, Abraham. Not only is, is Peter talking about a group of people that were the children of the prophets, he says, but I'm talking to the people that God has made a covenant with. I'm talking to the people that God has made a covenant with. And he says, you've been exposed from tr to truth since your birth. This is a part of your legacy. This is a part of your heritage concerning the, the first coming, the second coming of Christ. All of this is a part of your heritage. You've been exposed to this. And since you have, there is a higher level of accountability that's placed in your life. That's good for Israel. But let me tell you all, as the church, as the church, service in, service out, your exposure to truth, that privilege has now laid upon your shoulders a responsibility. Yes. That privilege has laid upon our shoulders a responsibility. Oh, Brother McGee, come on. Yes, it does. You are responsible for being, if you will, children of somebody that's been in this thing for a long time. Or you're responsible for the years that you've been in this thing already. You're responsible for the truth that has been imparted in Sunday school classes behind pulpits in revival services. There has been no idle word spoken from the pulpit that just damned up right here. If you were present or if you had opportunity to be present but you just wasn't here, then there is a responsibility. I hope somebody heard what I just said. There's a responsibility for the things you could have heard just because you were absent and had, had the ability to be here. There is a responsibility upon your shoulders. Listen, God deals with people that have been exposed to truth and not been exposed to two different ways. He deals with people that are revelatory of it and non-revelatory two different ways. We see it played out at different times in Scripture. Whenever the Philistines put the ark on a cart huh, and sent it back home, seemingly nothing happened to them. But whenever the Israelites put the ark on a cart and try to take it back to Jerusalem before the day's over, a man dies. 
Whenever some of those in Ashdod and stuff had the Ark of the Covenant was mishandling it, they got an Imrod. I think Brother Mike Williams just said this not long ago in the forum. So they got an emerald. That's, that's a hemorrhoid. For anybody that doesn't know, they got a bad case of hemorrhoids. All right? Think, man, that's pretty bad. But whenever Israel mishandled and took off the mercy seat, thousands died. Why? Because there's one people that no one's been exposed to truth and the revelation of it. And there's another people that have not been so. But there's a higher standard of accountability for those that's been given the privilege than those that have. Amen. Think of us. This, this ain't in the media, but. I turn there. Second Peter 2 in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome the latter end is worse with them than the beginning for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them you say that's a fair no because through the process of knowing God you've been extended a privilege that accompanies with that a responsibility And so what's saying is, you'd been better off never to have the, rep- the, the privilege because the accountability wouldn't have been as high. You understand what I'm saying? Now that's by no means a, you know, put up some parade that, man, no one wants to get saved. My God, you're accountable. No. Look in your own personal practical life. Anything that's extended to you that offers you perks or privileges, there comes a sense of responsibility with that. Right? Look in your own job. You're going to get it promoted. You're going to get promoted. That's great. But when you get promoted, you have other higher accountability and responsibilities. Many times the responsibility, responsibility or the accountability matches the level of the privilege. That's the reason why if you would delve deep into the lives of some of these people, my God, they just hear from God all the time and God uses them. If you would delve deep into their life, that privilege that has been given to them, you wouldn't want to walk the road that they have to walk through the responsibility and accountability that is coupled with that thing that we just, oh. Amen. So here's the thing, though, as being the church, we have more afforded to us today than what the nation of Israel had afforded to them even in the book of Acts. And we have more clarity today, I would hope, than what even generations before us had. And so with that comes a greater responsibility. Amen. Peter says, look, you look at the very very last, last verse there of Acts 3. Peter plainly told them that God raised up Jesus from the dead to bless them. Amen. 
Let me go back to Acts 3. Um, yes. God raised up Jesus from the dead to bless, to bless them. And this is how. In turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Now look, he said unto you first, God. So he emphasized that this privilege, this knowledge, being the sons of the prophets, all this had been extended to the Jews first, but it wouldn't always just be them. And as I said in the very beginning of this series in our introduction, Acts starts out still yet very much so pointed toward the Jew, but somewhere along the line, the Samaritans get in on this and the Gentiles get on this because it was that promise in Acts 2, 37, amen, or 30, 38, 39, that the promise was to them that were afar off, as many as the Lord our God should call. And that was spoken of in Acts chapter 1, that it was going from uh, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost part of the world. And so it wasn't just going to stay there, but it was extended. That privilege was extended to them first. Amen. And so Peter wants them to know, this, this is first extended to you, but it ain't always going to stay with you. It's going to go other areas. And so God had all this come about and take place so he could bless you in such a way that you would turn from your iniquities. And here is the deal. If you will repent and you will invite help, you will invite some help in through your repentance by turning away from what you once involved your life in, known as iniquity and sin and transgression. If you'll do that, then this repentance, even as John spoke and Jesus spoke, then this repentance and this remission of sins that's preached in his name and still preached in his name can cause a conversion and alteration for your lives. And he said, the privilege is first extended to you. Now, folks, that's great for them, but now let me tell you, it's extended to each and every one of us of every walk of life background, race, whatever. There's people now in other lands with different languages and different, different appearances and cultures than we are. They're being extended the same privilege that you and I have. And the glorious thing is what, Paul, what Peter presented, it's the same for every. Same for the Greek, the same for the Jew, same for the Samaritan. There's got to be a conviction. Amen. There's got to be a conviction. And you don't get conviction just by preaching to everybody until they just feel good. Conviction don't just come by always slapping everybody on the back saying you're doing a great job when they're living like hell. Now that's the sloppy agape love and grace and mercy that uh, society is trying to squish into the doors of the church and nothing more. But all that will do is give you a free ticket to the hot holy or the hot unholy land. They're not going to repent if they don't have no conviction. I don't bring conviction. Forget it. But I'll bring his word. And his word does the convicting. And as you've all times heard, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation pushes people away from God. Conviction draws them close. That's how Peter was handling the word. In such a way, it drew them close, caused repentance, Accompanied with conversion, here comes time of refreshing. And they had the opportunity extended to them. Amen. If you'll stand with me here this evening. We're not done with the lame man. He's walking, but he's going to walk on into chapter number four.
particular story is not done amen there but we'll look into you've seen a positive reaction to the thing but then we'll see in chapter 4 maybe a negative reaction to everything and it'll be no surprise that see number among them are the Sadducees that has a problem with it of course they are they don't believe in a resurrection so they're going to have a problem with it <laughs> so they don't believe in that message that uh, Peter is purporting amen hallelujah if we can just close our eyes here tonight Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.